and stay right here with you if you'd rather than be here. For the rest of you, if you would, turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to pick up in verse 18. It's a new section that we're going to be studying, uh, beginning right here in verse 18, extending into chapter 2, living the gospel. And then particularly in this uh, our section here, fighting the good fight. And the question is, really, what does it mean to fight the good fight? That's going to be our, our focus today. The example is certainly not Anthony Pitts. His job in 2002 was to protect a six-foot-four, 257-pound heavyweight champion, Lennox Lewis. An easy job, you'd imagine, at least on most days. What would Lewis need protection from anyway, short of small arms fire or a grizzly bear? Apparently to Pitts, his bodyguard, the answer to that question was Mike Tyson. The former champion, dressed all in black, strode angrily towards Lewis in the opening moments of a press conference to promote a potential fight between the men. Pitts unfortunately reached out to stop him, and that was a mistake. A left from Tyson dropped him, and the brawl was on. My motivation for approaching Lennox, Tyson told Sports Illustrated later, was to stage a face-off with which I was told both camps had agreed to. It was Lennox's bodyguard who panicked and shoved me, and then Lennox threw a right. For once, it seems that Tyson was not to blame for the chaos, but even when Iron Mike didn't create chaos, he was sure he sure had a gift for escalating it. According to the New York Times, the Lewis camp accused Tyson of biting the champion just below his right knee. Adrian Organ, Lewis's business manager, and Harold Knight, an assistant trainer for Lewis, told Bloomberg News that Tyson had bit right through the fabric, adding... Lewis was planning on getting a tetanus shot from a local doctor. The fight somehow survived that mess. Nevada originally scheduled as home for the bout passed, refusing to license Tyson in, hearing, in a hearing a week after the brawl. Memphis was there to pick up the pieces, and the fight was eventually held at the Pyramid, where Lewis knocked Tyson out in eight rounds. Probably not the example of fighting a good fight. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18, we get to see Paul return to his original purpose uh, to give counsel and instruction on how to manage the church at Ephesus, and here in particular in some instruction on living the gospel from Paul, his true son in the faith, and part of that includes fighting the good fight. As we live out the gospel, we will just get our feet wet as we look at this new section, but I think that uh, it's important as we take a hard look at all of this. Look at verse 18, if you would. We'll read through verse 20. That is, that's really our passage for under our concern today, if you would look there. Paul starts this way in verse 18. He says, This command I entrust you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight. Verse 19, Keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these, verse 20, are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan, so they'll be taught not to blaspheme. One of the most notable converts of the early English reformer and martyr Thomas Blaney was Hugh Latimer. Hugh Latimer was born around 1480. He was ordained as a Catholic priest on July 15th of 1515. He continued with theological studies and received a Bachelor of Divinity degree in 1524. The subject of his dissertation for the degree was a refutation of the new ideas of the Reformation emerging from the continent, in particular, the doctrines of Philip Melanchthon. Up to this time, Latimer described himself as, quote, 
and obstinate a papist as any was in England, end quote. A recent convert to new teachings, Thomas Bliney heard his dissertation and later came and witnessed to him. Bliney repented, Latmer repented, and Bliney's words had great impact on him, and that day forward he accepted those Reformed doctrines and understood how salvation occurred. Latmer was easily the most popular of the Reforming preachers, full of the word, with a vivid preaching style. He preached justification by faith alone, but he also preached that justification will show forth in the way a man lives. And he was adamant that the doctrines of the real presence of Christ at the Mass, transubstantiation, and the propitiatory nature of the Mass were unbiblical. And so, on one occasion, he was invited to preach at Hampton Court before Henry VIII. He predictably offended the king. Henry commanded Latimer to preach again the following Sunday and to make an apology. So at the beginning of the sermon, Latimer addressed himself as he began to preach the second time, quote, Hugh Latimer, dost thou know before whom thou art this day to speak? To the high and mighty monarch, his most excellent majesty, the king, who can take away thy life if thou offendest. Therefore take heed that thou speakest not a word that may displease. But then consider well, Hugh, dost thou not know from whence thou comest, upon whose message thou art sent? even by the great and mighty God who is all present and who beholdeth all thy ways and who is able to cast thy soul into hell. Therefore, take care that thou deliverest thy message faithfully, end quote. Then Hugh Latimer preached the same sermon he preached the week before with even more energy. During the reign of Mary I, he was put on trial for the clear teaching of the word which he would not recant. On April the 14th of 1554, commissioners from the papal party began an examination of Latimer. Latimer believed that the welfare of souls demanded he stand for the beliefs he understood to be true, for that was the gospel. His judges also understood that the debate involved the very message of salvation itself by which souls would be saved or damned. Latimer was found guilty of heresy and condemned to death. A sentence of death was being burned at the stake. And after that had been pronounced, Latimer added, quote, I thank God most heartily that he hath prolonged my life to this end. At this point, Latimer is about 75 years old. And I may, in this case, glorify God by that kind of death. To which one of the judges replied, if you go to heaven in this faith, then I will never come hither as I am thus persuaded. And truer words were never spoken. Latimer and Nicholas Ridley were burned at the stake on October 16th of 1555. While being tied there, he is quoted as having said to Ridley, quote, play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out, end quote. As perhaps a huge understatement as we could utter, we could certainly say that Hugh Latimer, like his mentor Thomas Bliney, fought the good fight. They understood what was important and what it meant to be steadfast, to fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience. So I want to take a closer look at our passage, as is our habit. We're going to break this passage down word by word because I think it has a lot of impact for us today. As is a normal, I think, as we go through the passage as a scripture, we understand its application has not diminished. Look at verse 18, if you would. This command I entrust to you Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies made previously concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight. 
This section on living the gospel really makes sense to us. Paul is returning back to instruct Timothy. Remember, we just came out of a section starting in verse 12 and going through verse 16, uh, where the Apostle Paul, after refuting what's been taught in Ephesus, showed what the impact of the true gospel is supposed to make, the impact on a life, that, what it's supposed to look like if you understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, as he returns back to speaking to Timothy, it makes sense that he would give him an understanding of what that gospel should do in his own life and how that should impact him. And so I think this whole passage here kind of resonates with Paul moving back towards his own example and now commanding Timothy. That word command is, is the noun perangelion. It has to do with delivering a message. Para is to come alongside and angelion is to give a message. But it's in the military format, so it's to give orders, to come alongside and give orders. So he's coming to Timothy and giving him an order. And if we've seen the message that's although it's from Paul, it's really from Jesus, because verse 1 says Jesus commanded him to write, and so and we understand that the gospel writers wrote as the Lord carried them along. So that's important, and he wants to make sure Timothy understands the importance of it. This is the message I have from the Lord. And he says, I entrust this to you, Paratithemi, to come alongside and set it before you, to commit it to your keeping so that you take it on in and you carry it. That's the idea. And then he calls Timothy his son, and we've seen that. It's a term of endearment. We looked at it quite carefully as we started the, the letter because it's very, very important to have the correct context in interpreting the letters. You have to understand who wrote it and what's going on in his life. You understand who received it and what's going on in his life and then what's going on in the life of the church around them. Otherwise, it's pretty hard, it's hard to make uh, appropriate application of the, of the Word of God because all the promises of God are true. It's not all for you. Right? And, and the Lord has commanded things, and those things are to be followed through. So all means all. It all. That's all all means. It may not take you in that time. It may take in all that the Scripture is commanding. So these are very, very important things to consider as you think about, okay, how do we understand this passage? And Paul considered Timothy a faithful man. He duplicated himself in Timothy. He looked at Timothy as another generation, a reproducing believer to follow him. A lot like our own sons, we, we want to reproduce ourselves in the lives of our sons, so we have to be careful what we reproduce in them, right? You know, teaching our sons to keep their eye on the ball and not keep their eye on Jesus, you've missed it, see? They might be a great ball player, they might be a really good business person, but if not watching Christ, and you've passed along yourself, but you didn't pass along godliness, see? We want to disciple them to godliness because we can have a true son that duplicates our lives and they can turn out to be ungodly because they duplicate the things they see most in us, you see? And so Paul wanted to make sure that it was clear to his audience, his readership, and also to Timothy how he really valued uh, how Timothy had turned out. Obviously, we know Paul had a lot of things going on in his life. He was a busy guy just like everyone else. He was evangelizing both in the synagogue and in Gentile communities. He was involved in planting and building up of the churches. Uh, his desire was, and our desire, of course, should be, as we looked at that, to bring many into the place where uh, we can say to them, as he could say to Timothy, you are my genuine child in the faith, or here's my son, and we understand the rest from the beginning of the letter, my son in the faith. That is, you're a replica. You're a reproduction. Naceos, my true child, my genuine, sincere, as close to identical as possible. There were qualities about Timothy that proved that identity. It wasn't that he was perfect, no one is, and we looked at some places where Timothy struggled. It's just that Timothy continued in the things that uh, he had learned and heard and seen to be in Paul. And what a joy that is then to be able to say the Corinthians as he did, uh, as we studied that in 1 Corinthians, 
I want you to be like me, so I'm sending someone who's exactly like me to bring you to that point. He had very great confidence in Timothy. And then he calls, and Paul recalls something very interesting. He says, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you. Evidently, some specific time, perhaps during Timothy's ordination, uh, his commissioning perhaps, something had been said about him. Uh, We don't know when or where this happened. Uh, Information, of course, from other parts of Scripture can help us form a picture, which is why we say often the Bible explains the Bible. We know that when Paul recruited Timothy in Acts chapter 16, verse 2, he said the brothers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. So Timothy had a good testimony already in front of the people who were there in his local community. Even a child is known by his ways, right? We can say our child's godly, but when other people start ringing in and saying they are, that they are, that's, that's more of an affirmation than our own view. We know that at some point there was an event in which a number of things happened to Timothy, and we can see some spots in the scripture that indicate some of that. I'd like to show you some of those. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, Paul says to Timothy later in this letter, he says, until I come, give attention to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Now, I just pause right there to say uh, that's a good model for the church. We understand Paul is telling Timothy in Ephesus to give attention to the public reading of Scripture, and we do that every single service here. So you don't have to make up some, some uh, certain uh, program somehow that's, that's going to edify people. If you, if you proclaim the Scriptures clearly, they stand alone. So apart from the message, apart from the transitions in the worship service, it's a time of just proclaiming the Word of God. And then he says, and to the exhortation and to teaching. And it just means to explaining the Scriptures and making them clear to people. And that's, again, a model for the church. Paul says, do that. Don't neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through the prophetic utterance and the laying on the hands by the presbytery. That's other elders. Verse 15, take pains with these things, be absorbed in them so that your progress would be evident to all. So pretty clear, something's going on here. Something is being referred to that happened earlier in Timothy's life. We can also see some more clues from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6, where he says to Timothy, for this reason I remind you, kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Again, just kind of referring to that that group laying on of hands during that commissioning time for Timothy. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Verse 9, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. So, A few things happen. I think we can gather both from this initial passage we're looking at and these other ones that are supplemental. Number one, he was given a spiritual gift which became clear as he began his ministry. And we understand that too. We looked at that last time, 1 Peter, where everyone's given a gift and we're supposed to do it uh, as unto the Lord and to bless the church that way. When you go through the Be the Church class, we talk about spiritual gifts and how they work and, and how that's important to be plugged in and using them. And then number two, a prophecy was made over him. Now, when we think about prophecy, that doesn't automatically mean foretelling. It doesn't mean telling the future. Though it certainly could in the first century where the Lord was still doing miracle gifts and sign gifts were still being manifested to verify the speaker or the message. So it could have been. It doesn't have to be. The normal understanding is that foretelling, it just means to repeat what God has said. Okay, And we see that often over and over again in the scriptures to repeat what God has said. 
and Old Testament prophets did this, primarily through the direct revelation from the Lord. Uh, during that time when the Lord was speaking to the prophet, he, he just told the people what the Lord had said. Now that the Scriptures closed, Hebrews chapter 1, and, and Jesus has spoken through His Word, we understand that we just repeat what the Scriptures say clearly to someone else. That is forth-telling, okay? And that's what happens. Now, we won't go into any more of that because there's more of it left in the book later on. And, and uh, those things, of course, would relate to false teachers and false prophets, those kinds of guys who would foretell something and then it didn't happen, or somebody who would say, God said, and he didn't say it. The Lord has a lot to say about both of those types of people. And then we also know that the elders laid their hands on it. So those three things are very, very important as Paul is calling them to his attention. And that's still a very common occurrence in an ordination service or a commissioning service. When our missionaries leave, we, as uh, those who lead the church, put our hands on them and pray over them and, and encourage them and just uh, strengthen them in their own walk. And, and, of course, if someone's coming and becoming an elder, we, we lay hands on him if we've, if we've shown forth the, the fruit of eldership. And we're going to see more of that later in this letter. But I think it's important as we point this out, as we had before, anytime we see anything related to uh, the authority of those who lead the church, of those, how they get to that spot, uh, what's supposed to be true about them, we need to recognize that in the context of this letter in Ephesus, you've got a number of guys teaching false doctrine. And they're in leadership. So when he gives these, these rules concerning leading the church, he says, if you desire the office of elder, you desire a good thing. Remember, that's a faithful saying. In the early church, if somebody said, hey, I want to lead the church, you would say, hey, that you desire a good thing. That's good. But then he says, um, those who desire eldership, and then he gives a bunch of qualifications. And that's not just by the way, accidentally. That's so that they would understand who's leading the church, who's supposed to be leading the church, and what are those indicating factors that have to be considered as you think about someone who's going to lead. And this is the same here. Uh, we have a very, a very, very simple service that's explained here and calling Timothy's mind back to it. And we get a, 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 this picture of the spiritual event in Timothy's life in which important things were said about his future ministry from those who were also elders and in a position to recognize the gifts of those who could serve the church. And other elders solemnly laid their hands on him and they prayed over him. And this was a significant time in his life, just obviously. And so Paul is giving Timothy a command and he's entrusting him with carrying it out and he's then reminding him of his ordination or his commissioning, which I'm sure is being used to reinvigorate him, to motivate Timothy to follow through and do it. Now, Paul has already given Timothy a command. So he says, this command I give you, it's not referring backwards. Some commentators will say, oh, it's referring backwards. But I don't think that's the case because we're going to see in just a minute, he's going to say exactly what he's going to command. But in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, remember he told Timothy, uh, he said, instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. What's that mean? He just says, listen, you're going to go. I've already been here. I've had to put out Hymenaeus and some others because they were teaching falsely and they betrayed the faith. Now I'm going to leave you and you're going to have to straighten the rest of the stuff up. Here's a couple of things you need to make sure that you remember. First of all, you don't get to teach strange doctrines. You can't just go and wing it when you go to teach the Word of God. It's not okay to go and just kind of say whatever you want and just kind of pull the Scriptures in, if you will, and just use them. That's not okay. You don't get to freelance it. You teach the Word of God exactly like it's written. Secondly, you don't get to say inflammatory kinds of things to the church to promote all kinds of, well, what's he mean by that and how come that's, that's not supposed to be done either. That doesn't help the church. What's supposed to be done is furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. What's that mean? Well, administration is a stewardship. There's a stewardship given to those who teach the church. They're supposed to take the Word of God, take it from the kitchen to the table, not spill any of it, and make sure it's delivered clearly. Okay? So this is the issue. And so 
That doesn't appear to be the command he's referring to because he made it clear early. Although, you know, as he's thinking about this, it would include all of his job as a minister and an elder here in Ephesus. So he says in verse 18, he says, This command I entrust you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you. In other words, as you think about everything that's gone on and how you got to the point that you are right now and in the difficulty that you're in, you're in Ephesus. Paul says, I urge you, don't, don't leave there. Stay. You can think, Timothy's probably thinking, man, I'm out of here. There's way too much trouble going on here. And anytime there's a church in trouble, that's not a place you really want to be that, for that long. It's not that much fun. Okay? So he's like, listen, I'm going to make a command and I'm going to give it to you and I want you to keep, safe keep it, which just means to, to do it. And remember, you, he had hands laid on you. You've got a spiritual gift. People recognize that you had the ability to lead the church. That by them, and here's the first command, here's the first part, you fight the good fight. That just seems so odd to say, doesn't it? I mean, it's, it's analogous in some respects to the way the Christian life is. Okay, and we're going to see that in just a minute. And these are high spiritual hopes that others held for him. It really constituted a powerful appeal. Listen, these guys put their hands on you. They recognized your spiritual gifts, right? And I think we've all experienced that in some way, um, the expectations of others on our lives. Perhaps uh, your dad was a great coach, and he really motivated you to do well and taught you well. Maybe it was a, uh, another coach. Maybe it was a, you know, somebody else significant in your life. You know, maybe it was a track meet or a soccer match or a football game or a baseball game with a lot at stake, you know, a trip to states or nationals or, or a conference title. And, and it's the idea of glancing up in the stands or looking over on the sideline and you see that person that was so significant in your life and that gives you that needed boost to do a little bit more to make sure you do what you need to do. That's, I think that's the whole reason why he says don't forget this pretty important time in your life. And then he says fight the good fight. You have two different fights there. Stratuo is the first one, and stratia is the second one. The first one's a verb, and it's an interesting way to express its present, middle, subjunctive. Literally, engage in war. Present tense, the actions in process, middle voice. The subject of the verb is doing the acting itself. So, engage in the battle. Subjunctive mood, though, that's the mood where there's some contingency, right? We're not really sure whether it's going to happen. It's supposed to happen, but the outcome is uncertain. There's still some question. And then he uses the adjective good, of course, praiseworthy, honorable, obviously honoring the Lord. That's who he's talking to, honoring his word. That springs out of thankfulness. And the second fight is the word stratia. That fight is noun. It has the article with it, so the fight. So it's referring to something specifically. This is the word for campaign. It's where we get our transliterated word strategy. So obviously it's referring to something. Paul says to Timothy, your life in the ministry is like a war. Fight it well. Have a strategy. Because, beloved, not all wars are good wars. And not all wars are well fought. And not everybody fights like they should. But there's a virtuous warfare, obviously. A good and excellent warfare that has to be well fought. And that's what Paul has in mind. And so we're going to see this. It's a spiritual war. And it has massive proportions. He's not talking about a physical war even though, or even an earthly war, although it takes place on earth while we're here. He's certainly not talking about a human war, even though it will include conflict with humans. He's talking about a war on the spiritual level, and he's reminding Timothy that he needs to fight the good fight. The clash with eternal consequences for souls. That's it. Now, as you think about that, 
It's not that there's any chance that we're going to lose the war. Remember 1 Corinthians 15, 24, just looked at that not that long ago when it talks about how, uh, what the gospel really is, and then it talks about, well, if Christ is not risen, then you're not risen. You remember that? And it gets all that straight. All the implications of Christ not rising would be devastating to everything that we believe, but Christ has risen, and it says in verse 24, then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father when he has abolished all rule and authority and power. So the idea is this. At the end of the millennial reign of Christ, he's going to lead the final campaign. He's going to bring everything and everyone underneath the authority of himself and is subject to his rule, going to turn all of that over to the Father. So the end is for sure, but the battle still rages and the war is on right now, and we are not home and we're not done and we're still engaged. Now, he says, so go and fight the good fight. And his reminder to Timothy is indeed a reminder to us as well. Because in some aspects, this applies to those who lead the church. And I think that's our first application. This is Timothy at Ephesus having a hard time. So he's saying to Timothy, fight the good fight. And that's the context of that command. And the battle right now is in Ephesus, where you've got leaders who are ungodly, and they're leading the church incorrectly, and Paul and Paul has left, and now Timothy has to take over. But there's a broader principle, I think, that's visible here. And that principle, number one, and, and this is how we kind of go through this, we can pull these out and make them applicable to us for sure. In living out of the gospel, this fighting the good fight is relating to the life of a believer in a fallen world, and it's a continuous battle. And is our habit, I, I want to give you some illustrations that show both the primary context, which is those who lead the church, but also the larger application of every believer. And we're going to see this very clearly as we work our way through these, some of these illustrations. First one is 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12. So we get to the end of this letter. This first letter to Timothy, he says to him, he says, fight the good fight of faith. So again, repeating the same thing that he said early on, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So, the eternal life you were called to, let that be your hope. So, as you struggle and strategize and you make a good showing, you have an eternal hope. So, as you think about the good fight that you have to fight of faith, if you think about the, the war, the spiritual war that's going on around you, recognize that a lot of times that's discouraging. And many times you'll be persecuted, you'll be ridiculed, you'll be made fun of. And in that the middle of that difficulty, you think about the eternal life you've already laid hold of, that is your hope. You should expect, right, if Jesus, was, if Jesus was persecuted, then you'll be. But the scripture says, if you're persecuted like Jesus was, rejoice, right? Because that means you're, you're modeling him very closely, and so you're going to receive the same kinds of things. But in the middle of all that, the middle of the spiritual struggle, you've laid hold of a good hold of faith, a uh, good hold of eternal life, and, the, and that confession of faith in the presence of many witnesses. So have a good showing. You have our eternal hope. Let that be your motivation now. And then later, in 2 Timothy 2, he says to, to Timothy, suffer hardship with me, and then he uses these words, as a good soldier. So again, warfare types of words of Christ Jesus. No soldier in the active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who has enlisted him as a soldier. So the idea there very clearly is this. Listen, if you're going to be committed, especially in the leading of a ministry, uh, the Lord's pretty clear. You're not supposed to entangle yourself with other affairs and business affairs and things like that, which will take your mind off of that. And there are many, many tragic consequences as a result of those who started in the ministry but also held on to their, their worldly life and kept trying to do that and then just wrecked the whole thing. So Timothy's pretty clear here. Don't, 
Just like a soldier, you can't be taking care of civilian life when you're committed to do the work of, of which you are to do under the command that you're under the command of. Now, you are in a war. The same rules apply. You can get snared in the concerns of everyday life, which will trip you up as you attempt to serve the king of kings. And then Paul says of himself in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, I fought, he says, the good fight. I finished the course, and I've kept the faith. So he's not asking Timothy or anyone else to do something he hasn't already spent his entire life doing, and that's encouraging. And then we move to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, and we see the same types of wording, but we recognize this is directed to the church, so it can't be just those who lead now, it's everybody. What's he say? The weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. So in other words, you're in a battle, and you're going to need some weapons, but it's not what you can do on your own. It's what you can find throughout the Word of God and what you're going to find in the power of the Holy Spirit in you. We are destroying, he says, present active indicative, speculations, and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So what are we talking about? So all these are warfare terms. All warfare language. God provides the weapons for our warfare, but it is warfare. Fortresses then of humanism and ignorance and antagonism and opinions and rumors and theories of men and maybe most of the time caught up in places of higher education, PhDs telling things, political people telling you things, you understand that they're wrong, what are we supposed to do? By the word of God, in the sphere that you're in, you're supposed to address those things that raise themselves up, what? Against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. God provides the weapons, it's warfare, and anything that's contrary to or in opposition to the knowledge of God that he provides through his word, then that becomes the object of our struggle. Even every thought in our own mind, and men, you know this, this is where you have to do battle all the time, don't you? You have to take captive every thought, and you change the way your mind works, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Renew your mind by the Word of God so you don't continue to go down those same old thoughts, and whatever those patterns of thoughts are, you're supposed to take captive those kinds of things. So there's a war going on, it's supposed to capture all of that in the power of what the Holy Spirit can do through His Word. And look how Paul refers to others who minister, Philippians chapter 2, verse 25. So it's not just you, and it's not just me, and it's not just Timothy or the church, but this is going on here in the first century, and just, it's, it's by the way, but it's still, I think, a good, uh, good application. I thought it necessary to send to you, he says, Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker, what's the last one, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and a minister to my need. So Epaphroditus is engaged in the struggle, just like you're to be, just like I am. Now listen to the language that 1 Peter 5 uses. Be sober of spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but resist him, verse 9, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. So that's interesting, isn't it? Be in your right mind. Don't be possessed by something else. Don't let anything else control your mind. And be alert. You've been warned. You have the countermeasures ready. You don't want to put yourself in a position where you're going to be prey, see? And that's what happens to believers. They're not reining their mind in. They're not taking captive every thought. They're not spending time in the Word. And the mind is roaming far afield where it shouldn't be, thinking thoughts that it shouldn't think. And guess what? Pretty soon the body follows along. When you see huge catastrophes and people and big affairs and all that kind of stuff, listen, that started years ago with the mind going where it shouldn't go, and nobody's taking captive those thoughts. 
And then all of a sudden, you know, Satan is waiting there, and he sees this believer, and they're not writing their life in, and they're not changing their thought patterns, they're not renewing their mind, and they're going this way, and now the body goes this way, and boom, here you go, devoured in your sin, embarrassing to all Christianity, particularly to you. Okay? So again, it, it very clearly is speaking of an active struggle. You don't put yourself in a position where you can be the prey. The Holy Spirit is able to strengthen you through the Word of God. It's not you struggling physically with anything demonic. It's specifically though, you're putting yourself in a position where the Lord can strengthen you and shore you up, and you can do the job that He has for you to do in the circle that you're in. The last one for today is from Ephesians 6, 12, and the language of which applies to every believer. Again, as we've seen numerous ones here, it's directed to the church at Ephesus, and I think that's very, very important, well before this letter to Timothy arrived. And so, look at what he says. He says this, for our struggle... So again, the Christian life is, it's normal for it to be a struggle. Timothy says it's warfare constantly. For our struggle, he says, is not against flesh and blood. It's not particular people that you're going to have to struggle with, although you will get in those kinds of discussions with people. But it's not really flesh and blood that you're struggling with. When you hear the political people say the things that are so anti what the Lord wants us to do, when you hear things coming from professors and, and, and people in higher education and, and media moguls saying things obviously completely against what God has to say about the Word and all that, you realize that it is them saying it, but it isn't initially, they didn't originate it, okay? Because the struggle is against flesh and blood. What's it against? Against rulers, powers, against world forces of this darkness, world forces, and just a massive, massive force, spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. So not just here, but also at this time before the Lord, accusing and, and creating chaos and all those kinds of things on earth. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so you will be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. So you're in a war. Your enemy is clearly well entrenched, knows precisely what they're doing, and under command. God provides the weapons. That's, we saw that from 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Weapons of our warfare are spiritual, not physical. And God provides the armor, we just saw out of Ephesians. And you're to do everything in order to stand firm. You're to fight the good fight. So the question obviously is, how do we do that? How do we fight well? I mean, you have to think, you know, when... Timothy's reading this actual letter penned by the Apostle Paul, and he gets to this point, he's probably asking himself that very same question. How can I fight the good fight? And, and so the question is, will it be trivial like the Tyson-Lewis brawl that meant nothing and showed very poor character amongst all of them? Really wasn't that struggle that they were intended to have? Because I, I really think that there's this trivial level at which so many people live. There is an ignorance about the reality of spiritual warfare, a real drifting, if you will, through life, oblivious of the serious struggle going on around them, and that is apparent and illustrated by very little diligence and fervency in their service to the Lord, very little time spent in the Word of God, hardly any time witnessing to anybody. I mean, you just see this trivialness that's going on, dabbling in everything, thinking about everything, about the world, consumed with social media, consumed with what the world says. You know, there's this trivial thing, a place where people kind of drift through. I'm talking about believers, because we're going to see Romans in just a second, addressing the church. It's this trivial place, see? And, and, and worse than that, 
They think they're in a battle and they attribute to Satan's attack such things as running out of gas on the highway or, or the consequences of poor planning and worldly living. And you see this on social media all the time. I'm under Satan's attack. You know, this is really, I'm really struggling in this one area of my finances. Well, you know, who was it that maxed out all their credit cards and now all the bills are due? Was that Satan or was that you? That was you, see? So you're not under Satan's attack. You're paying the consequences of a poorly planned life and not coming up under the authority of Scripture. See, this is... This trivialness that's there, attributing Satan's attack to things that are trivial and not truly spiritual, and it's the worldliness that just kind of dominates the life, see. So this is the call to that, isn't it? And if we're going to understand anything that Paul has to say to Timothy about fighting the good fight, then we're going to have to understand some of the elements of the warfare. We're going to need to understand the things that Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley understood, that there's something that's worth standing for, okay? There's something that's worth saying when it's time to say it. And you have to be brave and you have to say, okay, whatever the cost, I'm going to pay it, right? And the more I look like Jesus, the more perhaps I'm going to be ridiculed, the more perhaps I may lose some certain thing that I want to have. But this is the way that it is because I want to represent the Lord well. And, and I mean, so I think, I think we perhaps lost the understanding or maybe we didn't have it at the beginning if you come to faith, somebody should explain to you, you have to lose your life to fight it. And you have to give up your life to save it. You don't get to come to faith if you don't give up your life to save it. You don't get to keep this little portion of your life and just keep it, you know, under, under wraps over here. And then, okay, but I'm going to get all the benefits of salvation. Listen, you give up your right and you call Jesus Lord. And that means he's in authority. And then you do what he says, see? And you don't get to kind of float through. And you, you got to understand what these, what these people understood. We have to... You know, we have to understand, I think, again, afresh, this letter to, to the Romans from Paul. He says this, and listen, this is just so, it's so um, convicting. He says, it's already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. That is the position of many in the local church today. He's talking to the church, time to wake up. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believe. What's that mean? The consummation of everything. It's nearer. I mean, you're born again, right? When you first believed, you became born again. But now, the consummation of all that, seeing the master, it's a lot closer than it was. And beloved, this was 2,000 years ago. We're way closer now. And if you watch the news and you see what's going on in Israel and you watch what's going on amongst the nations, you recognize that the Lord is setting the entire thing up to come back. I mean, 50 years ago, you would not have been in that position. I mean, you would have had Israel back in the land, but you wouldn't have had all the other things in place. Nations going under, economies out of whack. I mean, at what point will the Lord bring it to that point when then he will catch the church away? And then everybody's going to cry out for a single world ruler. Why? Because every economy's in shambles. And now it's like, okay, yeah, let's, let's, let's just all join together, right, in a big brotherhood. That's, we're closer to that than we've ever been. And, and the Apostle Paul says to the Romans, wake up. Your salvation is nearer than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, what do we do? Lay aside the deeds of darkness and mark it. Put on the armor of lights. Again, everything about warfare, everything about struggle, everything about hardship. See? Let us behave properly as in the day. What do you mean by that? Well, not carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality. Listen, believers, that shouldn't be named among believers. 
You shouldn't be there, not in strife or jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. It's like the opposite. We always make provision for the flesh, don't we? We're always planning that what we may not be able to do as well as we thought. Well, I know I shouldn't be thinking about that, but you know, kind of, I like going there, see? We just make provision for failure. These are all words indicative of, of fighting the good fight. Wake up. There are some important eternally consequential things going on around you. Your family and people in your workplace. These people, if they don't know Christ, they're on the way to a crisis eternity. There is no other place for them to land, okay? That's what Latimer understood so clearly. That's what the Catholic Church says. Well, if what you say is true, I'll never make heaven. Right, because what he said was true. And that's why it was worth saying, I'm not going to recant. I'm 75 years old. I'm going to be burned at the stake. I could have just been quiet, except if I was quiet, then nobody would hear the message. He was awake, wasn't he? So Paul puts on Timothy all the weight and motivation he can by saying, listen, you're a true reproduction of me. And then he asks God to pour out on Timothy continuing grace and continuing mercy and continuing peace. He may carry out the work he's commissioned him to do. You know, when we bring our kids home from camp, the last night is, I, I teach numerous, numerous times throughout, but the last night's the one that I talk to, and I talk to our seniors. And I say this, I've said it many, many dozens and dozens of times throughout my year, years in ministry. You, we've had you now in youth ministry for six years, some of you. You started as a seventh grader, and now you're a senior. And we've poured into you, and we've taught you how to witness, and we've discipled you. What are you going to do with that? You're going out from us. Are you going to use it? Are you going to be powerful in the, in the way the Lord would want you to be inside the, the sphere of ministry he has for you? Because you're well-equipped. And I call them back and remind them, you, people poured into you. They counseled you. They prayed over you. They, they took you places and encouraged you and taught you faithfully from the Word. So you would be equipped for every good work. Are you going to do them? Because we don't need another generation of lackadaisical, marginal Christians moving into the church. What we need is people who say, I need to lead the church. Well, hey, you desire a good thing. Let's do that. Man, life is hard. Yeah, it's a struggle. But this is the reason why you labor and strive. We serve the God who's the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. I mean, we, we, need, we, need some, we need some fervency, don't we? You, you're equipped. That's what he's telling Timothy. You were equipped. We put our hands on you. You have the spiritual gifts. People recognize this about you. There's, there's good stuff going on here. And then I, I'm just going to pray. You'll have grace and mercy and peace and carry out the work you're supposed to do. And then he reminds him of the eternal life you laid hold of. In spite of all the difficult times and struggles, you've laid hold of eternal life. That's, that's always your hope in the middle of difficult times. And you know, that must have been effective because we know that Timothy stayed at Ephesus. He didn't leave. And he died as a martyr there. Fox's Book of Martyrs states that Timothy's death occurred at, on 97 AD during the reign of Domitian. This would place Timothy's martyrdom shortly after the exile of the Apostle John to the island of Patmos, which occurred at around AD 95. So the Lord's at work. He's at work in his churches. According to Fox, quote, as the pagans were about to celebrate a feast called Katagogia, in which the participants would dress in costumes, masks, and partake in sexual immorality, Timothy, meeting the procession, severely reproved them for their idolatry and is reported as saying, quote, men of Ephesus, 
Do not be mad for idols, but acknowledge the one who is truly God, which so exasperated the people that they fell upon him with their clubs and beat him in a dreadful manner. So here's his whole life given in Ephesus. Now he's an older man. And he has stayed, and he set the church straight, and obviously had a presence in the community. Likely some of these big group that was headed to celebrate Katagogia were probably people from Ephesus, people he knew. And so he said, hey, listen, this is not where you want to go. Don't go here. It's raised up against the knowledge of Christ. Worship the God who made you, right? And for that testimony, what happened? They beat him. And while the Foxes goes on to say, while Timothy was still barely alive, some fellow Christians took him away from the mob, and when he died two days later, they buried him in a place called Peon of Ephesus. Paul's admonition, uh, the command he laid at Timothy's feet, the reminder that he had the gifts and that the Lord had empowered him to not be timid, not be afraid of the gospel of Christ or of Paul and his chains. Timothy kept it. We come back here next week, and we're going to talk about what, what the essence of this warfare is. What about you? No doubt people have poured into you. You've heard the gospel over and over again. You've heard clear teaching, without a doubt, over time in your life. You've uh, perhaps opened the Word of God. You've read what God expects from you. Have you been engaged in fighting the good fight? Are you salt and light amongst the people who the Lord's placed in your, uh, under your uh, sphere of influence? Do you have a strategy? Have you put on the armor? Does your plan include carrying out the Great Commission? Going and giving the gospel to every believer, every single person, so they can come to faith and they can be baptized and they can be taught to do all the things Christ has told them to do? Or are you entangled too much in the affairs of the world? So proving yourself to be an unfaithful soldier foolishly throwing all of your orders on other soldiers more faithful than you. Paul urged Timothy to fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your great good confession in the presence of many witnesses, 1 Timothy 6.11. And I just think about what a glorious reunion that must have been when Timothy entered eternity on that exit note. As he looked at the Apostle Paul's face and no doubt had great camaraderie and reunion. And what about when Latimer and Ridley entered and William Tyndall or Martin Burnham or a thousand other ones and tens of thousands in the Hebrews 11 hall of faith and all those ones who did what they were supposed to do and fought the good fight of faith and struggled against the things they struggled against and then went into eternity having left it all out on the field, right? Doing precisely what they were supposed to do. We know that Timothy took all those exhortations to heart and proclaimed the gospel boldly in Ephesus, spreading the good news of Christ's death and resurrection and discipling and reproducing himself and overseeing the church, and like all those who are true disciples, paid the cost of faithfulness. So we're going to look at that next week, and I hope that uh, as we think about that this week, the Lord may be able to take a hold of your own heart and give you true discernment as it concerns those things. Let's bow. If you would, let's be dismissed in prayer. Lord, we thank you today for the fellowship of the saints. Sweet. Thank you for the time we could be all be together. A joy that we have in, in singing your praises and in, in giving what we have and worship to you because we recognize all that comes that we have comes from you. We thank you for the time we can spend in your word, which you've exalted equal to your own name, given us everything we need for life and godliness. 
And then we come to these very, very carefully scripted passages from the hand of Paul, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we just read this simple statement, fight the good fight, and we have a lot of experience in fighting, and we have a lot of experience in whether it's good or not. And Father, I pray that um, as we put this in perspective, and just understand just a little bit of the thread that we were able to pull today, Father, that you might help us have discernment on how we're spending our life. Are we engaged in fighting the good fight as we would understand it there very simply from Paul to Timothy? Do we have a strategy? Have we put on the armor? Are we equipped? Are we engaging everything that's raised up against the knowledge of Christ? Are we taking every thought captive? Or are we entangled too much in the affairs of the world and doing the things that Romans says not to do? Carousing, drunkenness, sexual promiscuity, sensuality, strife, jealousy. It's not an exhaustive list. But you can see, those are deeds of darkness. We shouldn't be involved in them. Wake up. Time to wake up. So, Father, I pray that you'll do that by your Holy Spirit. I don't know what's going on in the lives of these brothers and sisters in Christ any more than they know what's going on in my life. But, Lord, we do understand these words pretty clearly. And I pray that what we understand about these things, in faithfulness to your word, we begin to do them. And perhaps today there's someone sitting here, you... You listened to all this, maybe you've heard many of this, these things before, but today, the Lord's drawing you to salvation. Today is the day. In fact, uh, Paul said, today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. The Lord has been patient. He has, in his patience, allowed you to come to repentance. Today is the day you can repent of your sin. Tired of ruling your own life, turn to the Lord. Ask for his forgiveness, which he will mercifully give. Own your sin. Recognize who you were before the Lord. No good thing inside your life. We do no good deed, not even one. All the deeds we did were deeds of unrighteousness or good in relative relation to other unbelievers. But not before a holy God, which is why Jesus had to come and pay your price, die on the cross, and rose again. So you can claim his payment and his goodness because we have none of our own. Then he begins to do a work in your own life, conforming you to the image of his Son, engaging you in the struggle that's going on for the souls of men and women and for the kingdom. What a joy to make that kind of commitment today to respond to Christ calling you. If today the Lord did that in your own life, before you go today, just scan that QR code before you let us know of your decision, how we can minister to you. It would be our joy to do that and to help you grow. Father, I pray for the rest of us as we understand our salvation more clearly today that we'll be good stewards of what we understand, ministering uh, the kingdom things as we should. I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. And all God's people said, amen.